I'm Mike Ravenscroft. And I'm Mike Leffer. And you're listening to Extreme Uncertainty, the Dump Trucks Full of Money episode. Mr. Leffer. Mr. Ravenscroft. What do you know about cloud computing environment visualization? Well, I know what the cloud is, and I know what it means to visualize something, and I'm pretty sure I know what an environment is. So you're saying you could use a refresher? Yes, please. All right, so the headline you'll see is nearly every company on Earth, including the government, uh, is moving at least some of its operations to the cloud. It's less expensive than hosting on-prem servers. Uh, Solutions are easier to scale. You have less latency for content access from the edge. Small companies compete with the big ones for speed, services, all that great stuff. AWS has taken over the planet, et cetera. The problem with cloud computing is it's very challenging to visualize your environment in the cloud. Companies now have multiple instances in uh, with each cloud provider. You don't want to be locked into AWS, Azure, or any one vendor. Um, and also, engineering teams will have the latitude to build infrastructure in different environments. So because of this, many companies will now have hundreds, if not thousands, of software projects running across any number of cloud instances, and visualizing all those environments is a challenge. And the problem is, because your environment is so complex, it's hard to know what the addition of a new software will do to your network. Sometimes teams will push new infrastructure code to your network and it will break things. And the same is true from a security perspective. It's hard to know what your exposure is if you don't have a coherent map of your network, uh, or if you don't know how malware or any other type of cyber attack will affect your network. Seems complicated. Now, let's say you are a bag-carrying salesman who is trying to sell a revolutionary, game-changing cybersecurity product. Your buyer, who holds a $500,000 check, wants to make sure your solution will actually work before they buy it. Okay, seems reasonable. Now, ordinarily, the salesperson has to bring in a team of engineers to set up a virtual copy of your company's network and spend weeks, and in many cases, tens of thousands of dollars, spinning up the infrastructure required for what is ultimately a 30-minute product demonstration. What if, with no additional hardware, you could spin up that virtual environment in under 30 minutes. That would reduce your time to sale by a lot, right? By around 90%. Let's say uh, you were a company that wanted to test the software on your network to see how it would affect your operations. Or better yet, test model a malware attack on your network without actually, say, releasing malware on your network. What if there were a solution that could replicate your entire network to show how your entire environment will respond to any kind of change? I can imagine the words where do I sign coming into that conversation quickly? Our guests today are Craig Stevenson and Jessica Kreitzer, CEO and founder and chief revenue officer, respectively, of Hypercube Technologies. Hypercube went to market last year with a platform that reduces the time to set up proofs of concept for technology sales teams, as well as a platform that enables companies buying software to model it on their networks and test solutions before they're fully deployed. Craig spent most of his career with Raytheon, where he was a technical director and lead instructor for the Solipsis Cyber Exploitation Unit. He has taught courses on cybersecurity and is a certified ethical hacker, which is a very good thing. Jessica is an experienced sales strategist and has worked for a number of cybersecurity and information technology companies. Craig and Jessica are a testament to the incredible uncertainty that comes with the territory of being an entrepreneur. They share with us stories about the challenges they faced raising capital, and Craig tells us about the company's origins as a platform for cybersecurity training. 
We talk about how they navigated a consequential pivot and how through a whole lot of hustle, they made it out on the other side. This is a great interview. We hope you enjoy it. And we also hope that you notice that at around minute 15, I have a really annoying high-pitched laugh, which I was unable to edit out. So feel free to point that out on Twitter if you feel so inclined. This is our interview with Craig Stevenson, CEO, and Jessica Kreitzer, Chief Revenue Officer of Hypercube Technologies. And how I built this is another one mm-hmm. where it's like it's sort of like the end product when they're like a unicorn or like a gun. I feel like it's selection bias. Like if you right. interview all the unicorns, then you get their perspective on how easy it was. They were like, yeah. yeah, we didn't know what we were doing. We turned this thing on and then dump trucks of money showed up. <laughs> like, that's not how it works for everyone else. And especially um, in in this part of uh, the country, because um, sure. as you guys know firsthand now, um, raising money here and getting business started here is a lot harder maybe than it is in New York or Silicon Valley or um, yes. Boston. Could you guys introduce yourselves, please? Sure. My name's Craig Stevenson. I'm the founder and CEO of Hypercube. And Jessica Kreitzer, Chief Revenue Officer, Hypercube. Thank you guys both for, for doing this. We really appreciate you guys taking the time. Um, so, um, just to kick things off, um, Craig, what is Hypercube? What is Hypercube? Um, so, if you're a company, if you're a cybersecurity company that sells products that are supposed to defend an enterprise network, then in order to actually do a customer demo of your product, you need to build an enterprise network, put your product inside of it, do something bad to it, and show your product stopping it. So, in the past, uh, that requires a salesperson going to an engineer and maybe 60 days later, you're able to give a customer demo. So if you use the Hypercube platform instead, we automated the entire building and deploying of large enterprise networks. So instead, the salesperson can just, or marketing person can just click a button on a website and instantly have an entire clone of an enterprise network instrumented with their product ready to go for customer demonstrations. That's where we're getting all of our traction today. Awesome. And why is that valuable to enterprises um, today? Uh, it shortens the sales cycle. Like if you are a potential customer for this product, mm-hmm. you show up on day one and say, hey, I'm really interested in uh, buying a lot of Cisco. And Cisco says, cool, we'll build a demo for you. Come back in 60 days and we'll demo how all of our products work together to solve your problem. And if you use our product instead, then on day one, not day one, but day one, minute one, customer comes up and says, hey, Cisco, I'm really interested in spending millions of dollars. And Cisco says, excellent. Which of our products would you like us to demonstrate right now? Hit a button, go. How did you decide that this is what you wanted to do? Start Hypercube? So, my CTO and I were working at Raytheon at the time, and we were helping run scenarios on Raytheon Cyber Ranch. So we were intimately familiar with building giant environments for sales demos, getting them spun up, turned on, ready to go. And we just felt like there was a ton of wasted effort because every single time a potential customer would come through our facility, we'd spend weeks getting an environment and demo ready turn it on for a 15-minute demonstration, and then destroy it all. And the next time a customer would come in for the same demo, we'd have to rebuild it all from scratch. That led us to, as Raytheon, 
my job, one of my jobs was to go out into the marketplace trying to buy a solution to this problem. So we tried to, we went out to the marketplace, we brought in several different vendors to the, the Raytheon facility, said, you know, this contract's gonna be worth millions of dollars, put your gear, put your solution on our facility and let's kick the tires. And every single one of them failed and couldn't get their solution up and running. And that's when I was like, you know, if I can, if I can even get a solution that works, I'm light years ahead of these companies that have slick pitch decks, but no product that yeah. works. Um, and then I ended up quitting Raytheon and getting a minimum, minimum viable product up and running. And it was actually thanks to uh, the 50K from Mach 37 that I was able to quit my job and start the company. That's great. And was the decision, what was the thought process like for you leaving Raytheon? Was this your first startup? Was that emotionally charged? So this was, I would say this was my first and a half startup. So <laughs> a friend and I, a friend and I on the side had tried to start uh, an additional startup, which was going to be a social network for large apartment buildings like these. Essentially, you'd come in and every resident would have an iPad and they could click things on the iPad and do things like go on group dog walks or be like, hey, do you want to meet at the ping pong table? Just like events coordination, trying to build community inside apartment buildings. But we could never get to the people who can make that kind of decision inside of the apartment building industrial complex. <laughs> None of the people at the front desk out there even know the people who are allowed to make that decision. Right, so, right. Interesting. So it just kind of died on the vine. Um, we built a bunch of, we built some interesting software for it, but we never got any traction. Well, so I want to come back to that, but before we, before we go on to that, um, so Jessica, um, talk a little bit about your, your background. So you, you have um, like an enterprise background, but you've also worked with startups. So where do you come from? Yeah, so um, my entrepreneurial journey actually started uh, growing up. So my father owned a small media company, watched it grow, um, and you know went to college, was going to go to law school, decided instead I wanted to go start working and, and uh, started my enterprise sales career. Uh, worked in a number of large companies, uh, moved out to the Bay Area for a couple of years, uh, came back to the East Coast. And worked in another few large companies, and then decided I really wanted to dive into the startups and, and you know build something and, and have more of an impact. So. See, that to me is a happy story, a happy ending because you didn't become a lawyer. So that's yes. <laughs> absolutely thank God every day. <laughs> so, um, so the big companies you worked for, um, uh, I, I, I'm blanking on the name, but you worked for an enterprise sales for um, Iron Mountain it? out Iron in Mountain. Uh, San Francisco, uh, right. and, and that was a fantastic opportunity. Um, working in, in large enterprise uh, uh, deals early in my career, so I was two years out of college. Uh, through a couple of promotion, promotions, landed in a job I probably shouldn't have been in, but learned a ton, and uh, it was it was really really valuable experience. And so you were doing like enterprise uh, like B two B sales, right? Yes. So what did that um, teach you um, that you have found particularly valuable um, being an entrepreneur now? You know, the the key to a successful enterprise sale is really learning what what your your solution, what problem your solution can solve. Um, once you find that and you find the right solution, it becomes easy. Um, the other thing that I learned is executives are much easier to sell to than anyone else. Um, I prefer talking to a C-level executive over anyone else because 
they're going to either tell you uh, they're interested or not very quickly, which is what I what what I'd prefer in the sales process. There's like a, a shorter, um, you yeah. Sort of, you know who it is you're selling to, and you know that they know what their problem is. They 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 know that their time is valuable. If you can solve a problem, great. If not, they're going to tell you that you can't. You can move on. So. Uh, how did you know that Hypercube and, and Craig was the right fit? What made you excited? Um, yeah, because you're the hardest hire. Like, you know, he had his core team, and you're like the first, I, I don't want to say like like real hire, because that's not, you know, that's not. Jessica was the first person I hired that I didn't already know. Yeah, so for me, uh, when looking at what opportunity I wanted to um, kind of do next, uh, I was introduced to Craig through a, a former investor of mine and sat down, learned about the opportunity and the, the, the use case, but also Craig. Um, a big, you know, what's really important for me is can I work with the founder? Are we going to be able to kind of be on the same path and drive this thing forward? So that was right. what really sold me on, on Hypercube. Sure. How long did it take you, um, just out of curiosity, to like make that decision? Like, was this sort of like a you knew right away, or did you like evaluate the market opportunity and sort of learn more about the company? Just sort of curious. I think Craig and I talked for maybe a month, month and a half, okay. and then I decided. Initially, I, I said I think I'll come on as um, you know contractor and mm -hmm. see where it goes, and then I said, you know what? Never mind. Let's just do this. Let's go all in. Awesome. Was and there something that gave you the confidence there? Was there any inflection point? Um, no, I think just market research, looking yeah. at the opportunity, talking to people about it, and I got really excited. So. Not to mention Craig's winning trial. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. When you first joined, you know, what, what does that process look like of, okay, you're, you're, you're coming into, well, first of all, what, was, what is the state of Hypercube when you joined? Like, what, what does the company look like? What are the opportunities look like? Yeah, well, so coming I'm embarrassed in, about what's about to happen. <laughs> <laughs> so, so coming into Hypercube, they they really just found um, product market fit. So first enterprise customer onboarded. Um, what we were focused on at that at that time has changed dramatically. So, you know, we were looking at probably five different use cases. Um, you know, not not a not a big pipeline, but um, you know, we had connections. So things are completely different. Than, than they are today. Looking at sales cycle, we still don't have any idea what that's gonna look like. I can throw numbers at it and guess. Um, mm -hmm. I think it's gonna be six to nine months, but you know, we won't have enough data points until probably the end of 20 to even mm -hmm. say what that looks like. Got so it. it's, it's still you know, building, learning, um, putting the processes in place. But yeah, coming, coming on board, it was, you know, we had a few customers in the pipeline, but and we're looking at different ways, maybe channel partners, and have now kind of formalized what our, our strategy is going forward. If I remember correctly, that's super interesting from our first conversation six months ago, at some point you made a pivot with the direction of the company. Mm -hmm. uh, can you sort of walk me through how you both decided to pivot or sort of narrow <coughs> down those use cases over time with that selection process was like? Sure. It actually, uh, I remember exactly what caused us to pivot, and that was, um, so we had, we'd landed Forrester as a customer. Forrester had invited us to go and present. Uh, we were uh, going to be running Forrester's big zero trust training program. So Forrester invited us to a comp to their uh, symposium down in National Harbor, mm. and we had a booth there. 
and we were displaying, you know, this is a zero trust environment, this is what people are going to be doing in Forrester's zero trust certification program, and all the vendors' demos around us started crashing and breaking in one way or another, which is just, you know, if you're trying to do live demos at a conference, this is apparently just how it works. Um, and by the end of the conference, every single vendor within a two-booth radius of us had come up and said, can we put our product in your platform and give all our demos out of it? And we were like, well, I guess this is what we're doing now. Really? Yeah. That's amazing. So did you just go up to uh, one of your, like the other booths and just say, just so you know, here's what we do. Like, how did they know to come to you? Sure. So at these things, uh, at this Forrester event in particular, there were lots of speeches going on, and during the speech time, all the vendors are just hanging out in the vendor room with like nothing to do. So mm. all the vendors just walked around to all the other vendor booths and are like, what do you guys do? Okay, okay. Um, also, we were the only booth that brought candy. So lots of vendors, every, basically every vendor would come to our booth, get candy, and be like, tell me what Hypercube does. Is that, is that the secret sales sauce? Yes. Thanks for the meeting. Here's your bowl of Werther's. <laughs> Brings them in. <laughs> well, so and and, um, and and before we get too far ahead, um, let's talk about what Hypercube was um, pre-pivot when it sure. was Cybercam. So so when the company first started, what were you yeah. guys trying to do? So when the company first started, we were going to be the cybersecurity education platform because there is a big problem in cybersecurity education, which is in order to learn how to defend an enterprise network, every student needs their own copy of an enterprise network and creating and deploying those for classes of students is a really hard problem. So originally the company was going to be being the platform that powers cybersecurity education. Uh, but it turned out there was not, like, nobody in the cybersecurity education cycle from the university down to the student um, has money. So, like, it, all joking aside, like, nobody in that transaction had enough money to spare to use our platform. So the platform that you ended up developing had this sort of other much bigger use case, right? So right. Can, you, can you walk us through how you made the realization that like, we've built something that works fine as a go-kart, but actually there's like this racetrack right around the corner that's yeah. way better for so it. So it, the, the technical challenge that we solved was how do I clone an entire virtual network? So the technology for cloning a single virtual machine, that's existed forever, or not forever, but that's, that problem has been solved. Mm -hmm. Where it gets really hard is how do I make an exact duplicate of a network of 20 virtual machines? Like maybe, maybe this network has three or four switches, a couple routers, and a, a bunch of different types of servers on it. Mm -hmm. Getting the network portion to clone is a nightmare and is quite difficult. So the technology we built was automating the cloning of the network. Um, it, we just picked the wrong use case out of the gate. Uh, and it was very quickly we realized that there were large customers out there who were building. So inside of enterprises, enterprises were building networks internally to test out solutions. So like Oh they're building their own like they're building networks their own, or yeah. network or something? So in, in enterprises one of the big issues they have one of the big issues we found out they had was um, new Microsoft patch comes out. Sometimes when you deploy that new Microsoft patch it breaks other things and causes like the corporate email to go down for an hour or two at a time. Right. Or it causes the corporate CRM to go down. 
Uh, and so one of the things, one of the use cases internally for enterprises was, look, get rid of all the labor of creating a copy and testing a patch on, on these systems, use our product, just hit a button and, and make a clone. And Jessica, from your uh, like experience taking this, so 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 taking this um, product post pivot, where do you see like the opportunity enterprise wide? You know, I mean, you have an uh, enterprise sales background. You you know how these companies work and think. You know what what is the burning problem they're trying to solve? So I think in a sales organization, shortening the sales cycle is kind of everybody's uh, everybody's dream and wish, right? Yeah. And when Craig and I sat down after the Forrester event and looked at the opportunity with sales enablement. You know, I was like, "This is it. This is what we have. Where we have to go. Um, it's easier for a sales organization to get money to buy things than it is an engineering department." Right. And we're solving a problem, right? So, I, I would guarantee that I would go to any sales leader today at any large um, large technology company and say. What if we could shorten your sales cycle by 60 days and give your reps the ability to demo on demand rather than have them wait a month? And I, I can't imagine most people would be opposed to that. So right. I see that being, you know, wh where we really grow. Um, and we're, we're, you know, getting ready, ramping up for RSA right now. And our, our plan out there will be to talk to the vendors and show them what we've got and how we can help them shorten their sell cycle. So interesting. So you guys are gonna be walking the floor out there. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Very cool. Very cool. Better than spending three hundred thousand dollars for a booth. Right? I think our ROI will, will be much better. <laughs> um, yeah, and so to, to dig a little bit deeper in that, so um, so you so you are now selling to the people who are selling products. Mm -hmm. Talk um, about the Forrester thing. So so sure. how did that come about, and what are you guys doing? So Forrester does this thing called a wave where they go out and they evaluate security vendors and mm -hmm. then uh, do a huge write-up about them. Okay. Um, what they're going to do uh, during this next year is they're going to have, they're going to give the cybersecurity vendor an enterprise network inside the Hypercube platform. And then they're going to require that vendor to install their products inside of it. And then the uh, the person in charge of zero trust is going to evaluate whether or not that product works. Essentially, it cuts out um, a lot of the marketing hype and really gets to the... So the information that Forrester is going to be able to generate is, does this product really work? So the way most of those products get evaluated today is that uh, an analyst call, calls up the head of marketing and talks to him for half an hour. And the analyst has to believe whatever that guy says because, I mean, it, they don't ha have the ability to show them it working live. So you were three years ago sitting in Raytheon, you had a good yep. job, good salary, good benefits. Yep. So um, what made you want to like take the dive into this? I've wanted to be an entrepreneur for a long time. Um, I just I tried a couple things that didn't work. Nothing that ever got close enough to. Um, giving me the ability to quit my job and work on my own. Mm. Um, and I wanted to be, I was involved in the entrepreneur community around here. So like I volunteered uh, very early on to help a couple of the mock, I just volunteered my software engineering skills to the Mach 37 companies. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, so I knew Michael Wellman. Yeah. I've known Michael Wellman uh, for like seven or eight years. Oh cool, so were you working with him on Virgil? Uh, I didn't work with him on Virgil, 
in the beginning, I did a little bit of work with Shavira. Okay, cool. Yep. So you were starting to get into the mix. And... Yeah. I was like, I have software engineering skills. I just want to be involved somehow. Um, anybody need any help? <laughs> so you, to that point, you talked about getting in the mix, dipping your yeah. toe in. You started a project on the side. Would you recommend that approach to other entrepreneurs, test the waters before you cut ties with where you're currently working and diving in headfirst? Um, I would say the, the best way for an entrepreneur to decide whether they want to start a company would be to first go work for a startup and see what it's like. Uh, because it is not like working for a regular company. <laughs> In what ways? Um, <laughs> Jessica's laughing. Yeah. <laughs> like with a regular company, you know there's always going to be a pick check. Um, oftentimes in a startup, you're like, well, we have 30 days worth of money left. I hope something <laughs> cool happens between now and when that runs out. <laughs> um, okay, so, so yeah. job security. Job, secu job security is one thing. Um, another thing is the stress where like every single decision you make is incredibly important and could have a zero or one, zero or one. Every decision you make has a potential to cause the whole company to go out of business. But it also has the... It also has the potential to make it a rocket ship. Yeah. And so you need to get used to being able to make those decisions. A lot of times people get into, I've seen uh, I've seen people not used to that environment get into paralysis where they're like, I have to make 50 decisions today and I don't know what's going to be right and what's going to be wrong. Mm -hmm. And so it, rather than just making one and figuring it out, they'll spend three months researching it and then companies out of business so how do you do you have a process for decision making either of you do you force yourself the time limit or what how do you not have paralysis or do you suffer from um, paralysis are you human no so the we uh, I can't I can't speak for the whole team but the way the way I the way I have figured out how to make decisions and avoid paralysis is just incredibly quickly like evaluate it Make a, make a decision based on very quick information, and if we're wrong, figure out we're wrong very quickly and change. Yeah. So like, we've, we've, it has very much been the case that we've not made the correct decisions all the time inside of this company. But whereas in a large organization, they would spend six months researching their decision before making it, we would make the decision figure out whether it's right or wrong, make another decision, figure out whether it's right or wrong, make another decision. We would have been able to iterate and try 20 different solutions to a problem in the same amount of time it would take an enterprise to just make the first decision. Yeah, I mean, for me, I, I echo everything that Craig said. I think the best way to tell if you want to be an entrepreneur is to go work for a startup and see if you can you can hack it. You know, it's. It's exciting that the decision making that he's talking about is part of what drives me to work for um, a startup as opposed to a large company. In a large organization, you often don't have any decision making ability. It's here's your here's your orders, go run with it. Um, in the sales organization, you're kind of just given a script and you go and you follow that. Right. Whereas in a startup, you are really leading change and you know defining the company's success or, or not, um, which is exciting. Um, another thing I, I always like to tell people that come from large organizations is there's no, I'm going to call this department for that. 
you are that department, you will develop that material or find it on your own. And I think yeah. that's what a lot of people struggle with coming from a large organization. Yeah. I can um, tell you the problems we had that like I knew Jessica could solve. And yeah. that's why. Yeah. So I, when at the time we were, uh, I say we, at the time I was bringing Jessica on, there was no we. <laughs> <laughs> the royal we. <laughs> yeah. Um, I knew that we needed, I knew that I needed to have someone to manage the sales process, mm -hmm. but more so than just manage the sales process, I knew I didn't know what, I knew that I didn't know anything about how to stand up and start an enterprise sales team and what that looked like. So the very first time I met Jessica, that was kind of my, that was kind of my interview question. I was like, listen, I'll be honest, I don't know what do I need to do to stand up a sales organization. Mm -hmm. And um, I had met with several other salespeople before then, and Jessica was the only one coherent response. How did you know, because I'm very curious, just like all, all the companies at this stage that we see making this chief revenue officer, VP of mm -hmm. sales, director of sales hire, at this zero to one phase, super, super important. How did you know her answer was right? A good way, a good way to, I guess a good way to describe that, for me personally, I may, I consider one of my strengths as a CEO is that I may not know the right answer, but if someone has a suggestion, I'm able to recognize what good answers look like. And like anytime you're about to put a process into place, you may not know if this is exactly the correct process, but if somebody gives you one, there's a bunch of them where you can say that is clearly wrong, right? Like there is no great way. I don't feel like there's a great way to predict success, but there's a great way to predict failure. And the procedures we've put in place in the past all share a bunch of common things. Like they're all they're all organized. They all have like very detail-oriented answers to particular questions. It's like um, uh, in the venture capital world, I'm sure you guys ask questions about the market of a particular company, and you may not care about the answer, but what you care is the CEO knows the answer. Right, same, same, same idea. When I was talking to Jessica, I was like, I didn't know the answer, but it was very clear that Jessica did, mm -hmm. and had thought a lot about this problem and had come to a conclusion based on we tried a bunch of things, and this is what worked for sales teams. Um, and so, um, you know, this isn't closed yet, um, so we won't we won't talk about it just yet. Um, but you're, you guys are on the verge of, of closing a raise. Yes. Um, and this would give you, you know, um, or what, like 18, 24 months of runway. Yep. Um, so what does your team look like, you know, in two months time? Uh, in two months time. So I'm going to be building out the engineering team and offloading all of the engineering duties that I have been um, doing onto the right. team, essentially building out the engineering organization. Uh, so. I get to hire an engineer, and Jessica gets to hire two people to help her with the sales process. Okay. But I'll let her talk in more detail about yeah, that. Yeah, so the first thing we'll be doing is bringing marketing in-house. I think it's really important at our stage to have somebody <clears throat> who understands what we do intimately, um, working with me and another, another rep on demand gen content branding, messaging, so that's the first hire. Okay. Um, and then I'll be, be hiring an uh, inside sales uh, SDR next. 
Okay. So that's the first two. Okay. And then my next hire will be an SE, but that's that's kind of a little bit out there. And what is that? A sales engineer. Sales engineer. Okay. Yeah, because I, I know you, um, you've, I've seen you um, do uh, these sorts of, you know, uh, entrepreneurial one-on-one um, pitches um, before. So, you know, you've, you've run accelerator workshops where you're talking about building up a sales team. Um, you know, when you're working with limited resources, um, what, what are some of the sort of trade-offs you have to make, you know, understanding that you're, you know, working with, with um, obviously limited money, limited time, and then also you're, you're trying to build a customer base. Like you don't have accounts that you're maintaining, you have lead generation that you're trying to do. Mm-hmm. So what are some of those decisions that you have to make or, or the trade-offs you have to make early on? I mean, I think with everything, it's a trade-off, right? What can we afford? What can we do today? Um, how can we do more with what we have? And, you know, I mean, for me, it's, it's being able to do all, do things that I might not even be comfortable with. I'm not a marketing person. I've done some marketing over the past few months just, just because that's what we have to do. Right. Um, and those are the trade-offs. And even in the hiring plan, um, you know, I'd love to say I'm, I'm going to hire five people over the next six months, but that's just not feasible. So it's, it's really focusing on hiring the right people um, utilizing the right technology, focusing on the right opportunities and not getting stuck spinning our wheels with um, opportunities that are, are you know less than 50% likely to, to pan out. So it, just being focused. It's, I mean, the, the skill set you have now, super broad and impressive. You're able to sell, close, develop leads, but also spin up a team. Uh, I've seen other potential first hires at at startups who've come from you know, traditional enterprise jobs and they're sort of only focused and, and able to run sales plays that have been given to them. How did you make that jump and stretch yourself and, and learn all of that? So I think I, when I was in an enterprise um, you know, sales organization, I, always, I was always thinking outside of what they were giving me and trying to do things differently. And so when I had the opportunity to do that and make that jump, um, it was exciting to me. So it was something I'd always tried to do, but you know, in an enterprise organization, they say, no, this is the playbook, this is what we do, this is what we run with. And the moment I could step away into um, a startup and be able to drive that myself was kind of a big win for me, so. And so if you were interviewing yourself, you know, say you're a CEO down the road, mm-hmm. what questions would you ask to test for that? Creativity and flexibility. Hmm. I don't know. I don't know. That's a great question. <laughs> Anyone else in the room have any? Uh, yeah. What would you ask yourself, Greg? I'm. I'm just saying. Game recognizes game. So <laughs> <laughs> if you're an A player, you can recognize those qualities in other people. Um, and no, in all in all seriousness, like the 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 rock stars in the startup community in the Washington DC area and in any of the different fields, engineering, sales, customer service, it doesn't matter. I feel like the the people who are the A players in this field can recognize those characteristics in the A players in the other fields. Yeah. Well, so to that point, um, one of the problems that um, I think a lot of startups um, sort of underestimate um, the challenges associated with is hiring. Um, so, you know, there's all this kind of <clears throat> frantic energy around doing a fundraise and, and bringing in money and, mm-hmm. and getting that in the door. But then when you have it, um, you realize you're, you're also competing with um, AWS, with Accenture, yeah. with any of these, you know, big uh, institutions that, that are sucking talent right out of 
the universities or you know just competing with each other um, because they have you know, big big salaries, they have lots of benefits, and as a startup, you don't really have that luxury. You know, it, it seems like a lot of money, two million bucks, but then like that doesn't go nope, very we, far when you're competing with AWS, right? Yep, we we worked out budgets for engineers, and uh, that doesn't go very far. <laughs> so how do you how do you overcome that? How do you how do you convince people to join um, your company? Sure. So the um, Having worked as an engineer in the Northern Virginia area, um, money isn't what motivates everyone around here. Like a startup cannot afford to pay the same amount that Amazon can. Just period. Right. So the the things you can and the things you can offer people for joining a startup instead, or I can't say for all startups, but for in our case, joining Hypercube is um, the ability to really make an impact. So. Most engineers in large enterprises are stuck, are just like, a, they're another gear in the machine. And their job is to spit out code, and they're incredibly, and they have to spit out code inside of a giant framework where they don't really get to make any decisions. Um, right. So what we can offer an engineer is, hey, you can, you can work from home, there's no more time cards. You don't have to document every 15 minutes of your time because all of your time is going to be devoted to the company. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, yeah, you don't have to document your time. You don't have to like get up and show up in an office and sit at it. You're, you know, in a lot of large enterprises, your job is not actually to write code. Your job is to sit in a chair from eight, exactly eight in the morning until five in the evening. And if you happen to do some awesome code in between that they're like great but uh, a lot of people find that out when they go to work for defense contractors in the area so like one of the biggest business models here in the area it's, I call it, it's called butts in seats right so the government will contract a defense contractor to build something for them right. and the way the defense contractor makes money is by putting a butt in a seat and billing the government 2x whatever he pays the engineer right sounds right. like you had fun at Raytheon <laughs> um, we had a unique position at Raytheon. That was actually was not my job at Raytheon. Well played. Yeah. <laughs> I have done that job before at other places, but not at Raytheon. So you're offering engineers basically, you know, freedom to build. Yeah. You're, you're giving them the opportunity to do what they thought they were going to do when they became engineers. And uh, to give you some specific examples, it's like I give them the freedom to pick whatever tools they want to solve the problem we have. Whereas in a big organization, they're like, no, you have to use exactly this framework in this language, and it has to look like this. Now solve the problem. Jessica, does the same logic apply to um, bringing on like sales and um, marketing uh, team? Finding people who might have that entrepreneurial spirit, who may someday want to start their own company, and who want that experience. So when we think about you know the journey of the company. I feel that in a startup, you're always recruiting, you're always meeting people to try to, you know, learn who, who you're going to hire next. Um, it's like the raise that you, you said, you get the money and then you've got to hire people. Well, while you're trying to get the money, you're also trying to identify candidates so that you have folks ready. And I feel like that's a never ending cycle on top of the other jobs that Craig and I do is raising money and um, finding talent. So. Right. Well, so um, what are some of your tips for, um, for finding talent? Um, and I'm, I'm curious to um, screening for people who have an entrepreneurial spirit. Yeah, I think, um, you know, some of my tips for hiring people is, is first of all, always, always talk to your network. Find out, you know, who you know who may know somebody who's who would be a good fit. I think that's a good start. 
I also really like using Angel, Angel.co. Okay. Um, I find that it's, uh, you know, it's the people that are on there are interested in joining a startup. So that's, you know, it's kind of like a good pool to start from. Sure. Um, whereas if you're just looking in traditional places, you know, you can't really limit by people who are interested in, in something entrepreneurial. Um, and I think just, you know, in the interviewing process, learning, uh, you know, asking questions about things they've done in previous jobs. Have they ever, you know, been, been able to, to take something um, that they started and take it through the end that wasn't a direct, you know, maybe directed or given to them by, by management. So identifying people who have that drive and ambition and you know it is tough because we're we're also on the sales end not able to pay the same salaries as the big big companies. But um, you know we have other other ways to attract people. I I actually do. Uh, I've thought about it very consciously, and we actually take a lot of the tenants from um, Amazon's management style, uh, which is basically building out a. Uh, I realize how, as an engineer in my past life. I never thought I would be about to say the sentence I'm about to say, <laughs> and I would make fun of people who said it, but um, building out a service-oriented organization. So I need to be able to trust that Jessica, who's running the sales organization, I need to divorce myself from saying how to solve problems and just focus on the, the end result. So um, I know you guys have a lot to do um, to prep for our RSA and like all the customers uh, that you're working on and we have just a couple minutes left. I wanted to make sure that we, uh, that we asked you guys before we wrap up, what do you wish you'd known um, when, you, when you first started out um, that, you, uh, that you don't know? Um, on the, here's some specific examples. On the, um, on the fundraising side, I wish I had known that you're going to end up pitching like 50 or 60 people to get one yes. Mm -hmm. And so you should not stress out about every single, they're not all going to be no, they're not all, not every single one of them is life or death. Uh, and the second thing is you're not going to get to, if it's going to be a yes, you're not going to get to yes on the very first time you meet them. It's going to be a relationship. When I was in Mach 37, I really stressed out about the first time they brought in venture capitalists for us to like pitch to in the meeting. And what I wish I had known at that time was like, oh, you're going to see these guys like nine times in the next year, and you're going to have plenty of opportunities to go pitch them. Yep. This isn't a big deal. Just be like, hey, and then give me feedback. Basically, like understand that this is a longer process than just a yeah, six minutes in a room. Do not expect to go out, pitch through people, and get a giant check. That's not how it works. Fair enough. Fair enough. Jessica, what do you wish you'd, you'd known? Um, so I think this just goes back to you know any any position I've been in in a in a startup um, is I wish I had learned quicker that uh, to make decisions quick and move on um, the analysis paralysis that you know that people suffer from I definitely did in the beginning but hmm. now that I understand making decisions quick whether it's you know what we're focused on example you know with sales enablement see if it works prove it out if not move on yeah. and, and you know even with um, you know hiring and firing you know you've got to hire hire fast sometimes and fire fast sometimes so yeah. kind of being able to make those decisions quickly trust yourself and you know then learn from it something something you brought up earlier that I, that I wanted to mention on uh, hiring and choosing people I find 
something, a tip I would give to startups is uh, if you're thinking about hiring someone, pay them $1,000 to work on a project with you. A, vet their skills to the point that you think they have a reasonable chance of success, and then get some skin in the game. Be like, look, we think we, think we want to hire you, we'd like to work on this small project together, here's $1,000, come work on this project with us for a weekend or something like that. And you can tell very quickly how a person goes about solving problems, whether or not they would be a good fit for your organization. So that's just a little, a little hack. The other thing is, yeah, when we started the company, I wish I had a playbook of all the things I needed to run the company that had nothing to do with building a good product or delivering value for customers, like accounting, like all the different systems. Like, what do you choose? What do you choose for your CRM? What do you choose for your accounting system? How, who do you talk to about taxes? Because you have zero hope of doing your business taxes. Um, <laughs> yeah, right. For your corporation. Yeah, I got it wrong. <laughs> I was say, for, for like, the single person LLC, it's pretty straightforward. Right. For, for, for a C Corp, it's not a even hard. kind of. A little harder. Yeah. And then, uh, like, how do, you, how do you go about choosing a law firm? What is, it, what is it the law firm is supposed to do for you exactly? Right. Like, there's all this stuff that has nothing to do with building the product, getting the product to the customer. And collecting, you know, having them pay for it. Right, right. Details, painful details. details. Painful yeah. details. That's another thing, right? Like, how do you accept money from a customer? <laughs> Briefcase full of cash doesn't fly. <laughs> doesn't, most customers don't pay that way. <laughs> That's a whole another, whole another hour long podcast. Yeah, you know, how, how to get it set up. Uh, but to to wrap things up here, something a little bit more light. What's your favorite podcast and why? I'm gonna let Jessica go first while I think about mine. And it could be anything, it doesn't have to be business. Yeah, well, mine, mine is business. I, yeah. Anything I read is business related, anything I listen to is business related. I'm super excited. But we talked about this one a little bit briefly um, in the beginning, and they do focus on unicorns, but how I built this. Yeah. And I just love, there's so many different types of companies that you hear from. Um, my day-to-day interaction is mostly in the cyber community, and those are the types of founders that I talk to. So I love hearing, you know, Hint water or you know Peloton or whatever, and just hear how these different um, types of uh, entrepreneurs grow their business. Um, Craig, what's yours? I actually think mine would be uh, Jason. Most recently, anyway, would be Jason Calcanis's um, This Week in Startups. So there's some episodes where he just interviews and talks to a founder, mm-hmm. and I find those I find those pretty interesting because he digs into like how did you scale your company and all this other stuff. But every once in a while, he'll also do a series where uh, one of the ones I found most helpful was he went through and did a series of podcasts and talked to companies at various different safe stages and said, what should you be focusing on at this stage and how did you solve these problems? Like marketing, sales, and he went engineering, he went in depth into each area. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of, you know, whether or not it's the whether or not it's the right answer for your company, it at least gives you some data points where you can say this company did this and it worked. This company did something else and it worked. This third company did something and failed. And I actually find that to be the most helpful information. Like what works for each company is, is different, but it's pretty easy. Like what failed and what crashed and burned horribly is pretty common among all the companies. <laughs> So right. as long as you can get what crashed and burned out of the way, it's pretty, it's pretty good. I find that to be pretty good advice. And I actually liken it back to poker, right? So when you're starting a poker hand in Texas Hold'em, the best thing you can hope for is that you start with two aces. You may not win the hand, 
but the only your the best thing you can hope for is to start with two aces and know that starting with a two and a seven is a bad idea. And even if you see some unicorn out there who succeeds starting with a two and a seven, you need to know that they're unique and it was a bad idea to start that way. Yeah. I think that's a really good note to end on. Yeah, ending on poker. There was good. <laughs> Thank you guys so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Game recognizes game. Mic drop. Love it. Those two really do have some startup scars. More than most. Thankfully, now all they have to do is wait for the dump trucks full of money to show up. Many thanks to Craig, Jessica, and their team at Hypercube Technologies. You can check out all the game-changing visualization tools they're building at hypercube.io. Our episode was edited by me. Our music is by Reactor Productions. And our logo is by Priya Arunashalam. You can follow us on Twitter at extreme underscore pod. As always, embrace the uncertainty. Thanks for listening.